You're listening to Highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Leslie Hughes, Director of the Climate Change Council of Australia. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. We've learned a lot about communicating climate science over the last couple of decades about what not to do and what to do. We'll never be funded as well as the fossil fuel companies, so we have to rely on appealing to people's better natures, appealing to people to try to understand what the impacts of climate change can be for their children and grandchildren, future generations. We have to appeal to people's sense of both global, financial and environmental security. We have to find out how to hit the right buttons at the right time. For many people, talking about local impacts and near-term impacts is a lot more effective than talking about the poor old polar bears, for example, which are a very long way away from Australia, or talking about what might happen in 2100. We really need to make it local, make it soon. And this sounds kind of mercenary, I suppose, but um, there's a saying that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. So when we do have one of these extreme events, a lot of the politicians will say, now is not the time to be talking about climate change. To which we respond, now is exactly the time to talk about climate change because these events are being driven by climate change. The black summer bushfires, for example, we did a lot of media and a lot of messaging. The floods in eastern Australia, same. The last drought, which was very long in the last El Nino event, we talked a lot about the impact of climate change on drought. We do have to, at times when there is an emergency happening, remind people that this is being exacerbated by climate change, even at the risk of being called ambulance chasers, as we have been in the past. The way I talk about tipping points is imagine you're driving a bus towards a cliff and you know the cliff is there, but there's a fog and you can't see exactly where the cliff is. Under those circumstances, keeping on driving fast is a really stupid idea. You really need to put the brakes on regardless of where exactly the edge of that cliff is, if you're not quite sure. The cliff is the tipping point. And for a lot of things, we don't know where these tipping points will occur We just know that they're out there in the fog waiting for us to fall over them. And because we know that and we understand the science that's going to lead to them, we absolutely must put the brakes on the bus, which is emissions. We are the stewards of an enormous percentage of the world's biodiversity. And importantly, many of our plants and animals are found nowhere else. They're what we say endemic to Australia. They evolved here and they're found nowhere else. So we have, as Australians... I think, an extraordinary role to keep those species around, especially in groups like our plants. Obviously, we've got all the marsupials that are mostly not found anywhere else, but our amphibians, our birds, our fish, there's enormously high percentages in all of those groups of endemics that are found nowhere else. We also have an extraordinary array of different sorts of ecosystems, everything from the Great Barrier Reef and other coral reefs to desert ecosystems, to alpine ecosystems, to our incredible eucalypt forests, to our kelp forests, to everything. And most of those ecosystems are declining. I was on a review paper with a big group of people where we documented ecosystem collapse in 19 different ecosystems. And we found that none of them were collapsing right throughout their range, but all of them were showing signs of collapse in parts of their range, with climate change being an enormous driver. We've got the worst mammalian extinction record of any continent. 
We've had many, many species go extinct since European colonisation, and it's the rate of extinction here in Australia, particularly in some groups like what we call medium-weight mammals, where we've lost enormous numbers. We've got huge feral animal problems, feral predator problems, habitat loss, and all of those things are intersecting with climate change. Our Indigenous communities tend to be either in really remote areas or in lower socioeconomic groups in urban areas, and it's those groups that are particularly vulnerable to any sort of change, particularly climate change. Our Indigenous culture has been around for probably 65,000 years, living pretty harmoniously with nature. They had small populations that were living off the land And most of the rapid change to the Australian environment has occurred since European colonisation a bit over 200 years ago. At the same time, I think it's being more widely recognised now that Indigenous communities have to be an enormous part of the solution. We have a lot of what we call Indigenous protected areas now that are very large areas that are being looked after by Indigenous communities, but obviously they need funding to be able to do that. Increasingly, there are things like Indigenous ranger programs where people live on country and look after their country. They could always use more resources. But the role of Indigenous peoples in managing their country is much better recognised now than even 10 years ago. It is the case that many of my colleagues are reluctant to speak out in the public sphere. I think that comes a bit from what's happened in the past where scientists and advocates have been really targeted very unfairly by vested interests that have an interest in delaying action. I have always had the view that if you are a scientist and you do accept the science and you understand the science, that you have no option but to speak out. If you really understand the risks that climate change poses to all life on earth, how can you sit by and not speak out about that? I have never seen being a scientist and being an advocate or activist, whatever you want to call it, as having any inconsistency at all. In fact, I get frustrated with scientists who are reluctant to speak out because if all you do is write papers in scientific journals and don't take the communication to another step, then you will have limited impact. We do need to collect data. We need to write scientific papers that are good ones, but we also need to be out in the public communicating that. I've never seen a problem with those two roles. For me, they are one and the same. Most of my work on gender equity has been within a university context because it is still the case that only 30% of university professors, which is the highest level in Australia, are women on average. So we don't have enough role models for young women to go into science and the other STEM disciplines and see that they can be successful and have a great career in science. So we need to tackle this. And where I've been involved in tackling it is at the university level. And we've been doing things at my university, such as 
changing the promotion system to better value the sorts of things that many women do within a university context that have not been as valued before. So things like public engagement and communication, things like integrating, say, science with public policy. And by the university recognising that those skills and those activities are just as important as pumping out 100 papers, we've been able, I think, to shift the dial on what is valued within universities. And certainly when we brought in a new promotion system at the university that I am at, we got a huge upswing in women applying for promotion and being promoted. It's a slow process, but I think we can identify where the barriers to women progression are and tear those barriers down as best we can. Our young people, they're putting the older generation to shame. We saw the school kids strike start a few years ago and the wonderful Greta Thunberg who really lit that flame and we had huge school kids strikes all around Australia and globally. Many of those kids marching couldn't vote then. They were less than 18 or less than 21 depending on the country But they're growing up now and they're demanding change. And I think the last election that we had in Australia where there were a lot of independents that got elected that had climate policy as their number one key policy, they got the youth vote. The kids are voting for their future and they're active, they're passionate, they're scared, they're informed, you know, they get a lot more climate science at school than I did when I was at school. So they are the future. It is also unfair for us as adults to rest all our hopes on the younger generation. It's not fair to say, isn't it great? You give us hope. You'll fix it. By the time a lot of those kids are grown up, it'll be too late if we haven't fixed it already. So while they are urging us for stronger action to save their futures, we shouldn't sort of step back and say, well, the young people are going to fix it because it is our responsibility to fix it. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.